to welcome you to the, uh, the continuation of our, our series called The Way of Jesus. And we're actually in part two of this series, which in part one, we looked at the life of Jesus, different episodes from his life, to figure out who the real Jesus is, because we have this tendency to create our own version of Jesus. And then in the second part of this series, we've been answering the question, well, what is Christianity? Really, what does it mean to follow this Jesus. And we've looked at, for the past few weeks, a few different areas of life and how Christians would relate to them. We've looked at things like how Christians would relate to sex and money. And today, we're just going to look at the, the topic of Christian community. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're, we're looking at through this whole series, there's not one specific passage <clears throat> that kind of spells out everything for Christian community, because really the whole Sermon on the Mount is kind of building that picture. But we're, what we're going to do today is look at one passage where really Jesus shows us that the, the way that Christians relate to each other is going to be really completely different, utterly different than what we're used to. Uh, because we, I think we all want healthy relationships. That's a pretty general desire. We want healthy relationships, but at the same time, our lives are just full of the pain that's caused by broken relationships. We see this in our families. We see this in our marriages in our communities, in our churches, in our nation, and in the world. We just see the effects and the misery caused by broken relationships. And what we're going to see in our passage today in Matthew 5 is that Jesus doesn't say his people are immune to this kind of relational tension, but that they're going to behave and act really in a beautifully different, utterly different kind of way in the midst of that tension. Um, so our outline for today, we're going to look at this picture of the new community that Jesus is forming. We're going to look at the deadly threat to community, and then we're going to look at the, the real hope for community. We're going to look at really the, the unique resource that Christians have to be able to actually live in community like Jesus describes. Um, but we're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 21 through 26. So I'll read this and we'll get started. This is Jesus talking and he says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there, there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So not the most uh, hopeful passage we're looking at today, but well, there is hope at the end. Um, <clears throat> but what we're going to look at first uh, is just this picture of the new community that Jesus is painting for us. That's our first main idea today is the new community. And in the middle of this passage, <clears throat> Jesus gives an example of how his people will handle conflict. Um, but it's so much more than just simply practical advice. It is practical. It's a practical example. But when we look down into it in a little more detail like we're going to do here, we'll get to see something that's really at the heart of Christian community, which is not just the absence of conflict, but instead the actual pursuit of peace. That's why earlier in uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you go back, you'll actually see Jesus say that his people will be peacemakers. And when you and I hear the idea or the word of peace, uh, the idea might come into your head of maybe, you know, the absence of conflict or the absence of war, or maybe you'll just think of inner peace. But the biblical understanding of the concept of peace is much deeper and more beautiful than that. And I think really the best way for us to understand it is to look at the Old Testament Hebrew word that's used for peace. It's actually one you'd probably recognize. It's the word shalom. 
And what the word shalom carries with it is so much more than just the absence of conflict. It really entails this idea of completeness or of wholeness. And there's this, really, shalom carries with it this connotation of something very complex with lots of pieces, lots of parts that are all together perfectly, complete and whole. So the idea of shalom through the Bible is that life is complex. Life is full of moving pieces. It's full of relationships and circumstances and scenarios. And when any part of life, any of those parts of life are out of alignment, then your shalom breaks down. So to be a peacemaker or someone who's bringing peace, bringing shalom, be someone who's actively pursuing and seeking restoration and healing. And that's what we see in Jesus' example here. I'll read it for us again in verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, So, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So here in the example, there's... The peace has broken down. There's relational turmoil within the community of Christians. That's why it uses the word brother, because when you're a Christian, you're part of God's family. It's not talking about a biological brother. There's breakdown. There's relational tension, and Jesus' solution is go and fix it right away. Go and reconcile. Seek that restoration. But Jesus includes some specific details that help us go deeper here and, and really pull more out of what he's saying for what it means for this new community he's forming. Because Jesus could have just said, If your brother has something against you, go and reconcile. But he said, if you're in the temple offering your gift, leave it there, go and reconcile. So he adds this location of the temple and this activity of offering a gift. So why does he do that? Because for you and I, that might sound inconvenient. I don't know about you, but I'm very much about efficiency. And if I've started a job, it's hard for me to finish it, leave it like unfinished. So leaving something like this half done would just eat me up inside. So that sounds inconvenient to us or maybe annoying to us, but to the original hearers, it would have sounded crazy because the altar in the temple was in Jerusalem. There was only one temple where you could be doing this. So everyone knew, okay, I'm in Jerusalem. A lot of Jesus' followers were from Galilee, which I was reading some commentaries on this, and a guy said, one of them said that this would be about a round-trip journey of about a week. You would travel three days back to Galilee, make things right with your brother, assuming it goes well and goes quickly, then you're traveling three days back. So the inconvenience level of what Jesus just called us to is astronomical. But beyond that, he's t- they would have been shocked by what he was telling them to interrupt because they were in the middle of a sacrifice, a, a sacred time of worship and sacrifice before God, which you would think would take precedence over you know, something that obviously happened in the past. You could just go deal with it later. But Jesus says, no, the, the reconciliation takes precedence over that. So there's a lot we could pull out of this, and relationships are so complex. There's so many angles you could take, but there's two things I want to look at based on these specific details that Jesus purposely includes that that are for us in understanding what this new community, what Christians are supposed to look like as a community. I'm really looking at kind of two angles, kind of the commitment angle and then the the corporate angle. So by explaining this inconvenience that they'd be willing to go to, and by interrupting a, a sacrifice, Jesus is showing us that his people, his followers, will be a people committed to an active, hard-fought, inconvenient pursuit of each other's well-being. I'll say that one more time just so we can kind of hear it, let it sink in. Christians are to be a community of people who are committed to an active, hard-fought, inconvenient pursuit of one another's well-being. So what this means is that the absence of conflict isn't really enough. 
and religious ritual while relationships lay in shambles. It's not, it's, they lay in shambles on the side and you're just going, going through your relig- religious motions. It's not really enough. It's not going to work. This is going to be a community of people who aren't going to sweep things under the rug just because it keeps up appearances and things look good. This is going to be a community of people completely committed to the pursuit of real peace. And you'll see that this applies to every single person in every situation when in Matthew, later in the book, Jesus says, if you, if, you have, if you realize that your brother has wronged you, you go to him. So that's the flip side of this scenario. This is where you've wronged your brother, you're supposed to go to him. If your brother's wrong you, wronged you, you're supposed to go to him. That means literally everybody is supposed to be pursuing this actively, and there's no room for blame shifting or saying, you know, well, he should have come to me. Jesus spells out holistically, this is everyone's prerogative. There's this commitment level to this. And this obviously applies to conflict resolution, but when you think about this understanding of peace, that it's actually an active pursuit of well-being, it applies to every area of life for the Christian community. This will be a group of people who are actively meeting each other's material needs and mourning with each other and bearing the burden of loss with one another and celebrating joyfully together whenever things go well. And this people will be committed to the point where it doesn't really matter the personal cost, where you'd be willing to humble yourself and go to your brother and ask for forgiveness, or even do the hard work of extending forgiveness in these types of situations, or potentially bringing correction to a, a detrimental behavior in someone's life or attitude in someone's life that's breaking down the shalom or the peace in their life. So there's really no limit to that, to the level of commitment. Jesus is calling us to be a people who are pursuing peace actively. But secondly, <clears throat> and I think this is the one that the thing that I, when I was reading this kind of stuck out to be the most that would be for us um, today in America is that the way that Jesus describes this and what he has them interrupting, you know, interrupting this sacred time of worship and sacrifice, it really flies in the face of how we so easily want to privatize and individualize our Christianity or really our spirituality. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, there's a really popular movement, kind of a desire for, we want to have this experience of the divine reality, but we don't want to have to deal with people. This is where you get the sentiment that you've probably felt, I love God, I hate church. You know, that, that's where that comes from. We want to separate it, we want to make it something where, you know, I don't want to deal with people, and if the goal was no conflict, isolating would be actually probably the best solution. <laughs> If the goal is no conflict, then you should stay secluded, away from people, because anytime there's people, there will be conflict. But like we're hearing Jesus describe here, the goal is not no conflict. The, the goal is the pursuit of each other's well-being. And that complete, completely changes and kind of turns on its head this idea that you can just privatize your relationship with God because <clears throat> what you have God saying here is, if you would be okay just worshiping me and going through your religious rituals while all your relationships, you've got all your other Christian brothers and sisters at an arm's length, then you don't understand what I'm about. God's about a relationship with him and then with people. His two greatest commands are love God and love people. And what he's saying is if you think you can just continue to worship while all those relationships are in shambles, you don't understand this thing called Christianity. You don't understand me. And I think this is kind of like leads to the point of Christianity is something you literally cannot do alone. And it's not because Christianity is too hard and you need help. You know, it's, I mean, it is, it's a difficult life and you will need help, but that's not why. You just literally, by its nature, you can't do it alone. It's a corporate thing. If you're supposed to be pursuing the peace of those around you and pursuing the, pursuing the well-being of those around you, you can only do that with others. You can only do that if there's other people. And just to kind of bottom line this, <clears throat> this idea... God so intricately ties our relationship with him and other people together to where he would say, 
the way we treat other people reveals how we actually feel about him. In, in 1 John uh, 4.20, this is where, let's kind of wrap up this, this idea. <clears throat> Jesus, or John says in 1 John 4.20, he says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. So if you realize what that's saying, it's not saying if you don't love people, God won't accept you, he won't like you. He's saying if you don't love people, you also don't love God. So this is this idea of Christianity cannot be done alone, this idea of Christianity being an active pursuit of each other's well-being, not just the absence of conflict or sweeping things under the rug. Now, I recognize this might sound like a really exhausting, difficult, (laughs) uncomfortable type of community to be a part of. But I do think this is a beautiful picture of community, and I want to paint that for just a minute. And I think the easiest way for us to really think about it from that perspective would be put yourself in the shoes of the person being pursued in Jesus' example. So think about being a part of a community where every other person in that community is so committed to your well-being that they'd be willing to pursue you in this way. Meaning, do an actual, you know, imagination right now with me, you know, do do a thought experiment. Think of someone who's wronged you in your life. Now imagine if they were willing to lay aside everything, to put everything on hold, to humble themselves, to come to you and verbalize everything they've done wrong, try to articulate how that's impacted you, make no excuses, shift no blame, talk about how they would love to try to make things right to the best of their ability, and then ask you to forgive them with absolutely no strings attached and with absolutely no expectation on you to do it right then and right there because they know forgiveness has its own challenges that come with it. Imagine if someone pursued you like that. I don't think, I think a lot of us have never been pursued by another human being that way, but that's what Jesus is saying his people will be doing all the time. Think of the healing that can take place in our, from your childhood home to your marriages, to your communities, your neighborhoods, to your church, the nation, to the world, think about the type of healing that could take place if we actually treated each other this way. But we all know that this community, this community of peace that's described here, um, can sound like a pipe dream. You know, even, you might be thinking, oh, Dave's a pretty positive guy. He's just naive and young. Um, I have white beard hair. I'm not that young anymore. (laughs) Um, But it can sound like a pipe dream, even in the church, maybe even especially in the church, when we hear about this, this type of way of relating to one another. And what we'll see is that Jesus kind of gives us the reason why that sounds like a pipe dream to us, which is going to be our second main idea today. It's going to be the deadly threat to community. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first two verses we looked at today. <clears throat> he says, You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So here we see Jesus talking about one of the commands that maybe if you hadn't read this passage, you might think, I'm pretty good at that one. You know, don't murder. Got it. You know, like hopefully most of us today could say, we passed that test. But as Jesus so often does, he takes something we th- that we think we're good at, he takes that and shows us that we're actually nowhere close to as good at it as we thought. Because he says, if you're angry at your brother in a way that leads you to treat him with disdain and with scorn and to insult him, then you're actually guilty of the same crime and do the same punishment as a murderer. 
that's some heavy stuff. <clears throat> and in case you think you're off the hook because maybe you, know, you don't deal with anger a lot, you don't have a lot of a big emotional outbursts, you don't insult a lot of people to their face, um, Jesus actually shows us how this kind of pins us all to the wall by the way he talks about it here because the word anger that he uses in this passage has the root word of swelling up, which means that even a slow burn kind of bitterness that leads to scorn would also apply here. And the word he uses for fool carries with this idea of emptiness. So commentators said this kind of carries the idea of calling someone a nobody or treating them as a nothing. So now you're starting to see that we are all guilty of this because really it's point, Jesus is pointing out this is treating other people or viewing other people as less than. This is us basically, you know, it wouldn't even have to be outwardly yelling at somebody. It's just us treating someone with complete disregard. You could actually see someone as less than, and maybe you vent about them sometimes and call them a fool or a moron, but not to their face. Um, but really, you just treat them with, you know, you, you just kind of treat them with indifference. You treat them as if they don't exist or they don't matter. And the, uh, the Christian author Rebecca Pippert once said, uh, the final form of hate is indifference. Uh, one of my coworkers told me that the Illumineers have also said that. I didn't know that, but learned that today, if you know the band the Illumineers. So other people know it as well. So unfortunately, anger and hate are not as easy for us to write off as we would like them to be. We're not as easy, it's not as easy for us to excuse ourselves from them, and, <clears throat> and they're not as easy to deal with either, because um, it might be tempting to say, hey, well, maybe anger management's the solution here. You know, we learned some techniques, breathing techniques, those are not bad ideas, but the issue of anger runs deeper. There's a root underneath it that I want to spend a minute kind of diving deeper down. Um, and since the issue runs deeper than just surface level things, the solution is going to have to be deeper as well. <clears throat> so I was actually researching anger this week, and, uh, and I found something that, that I thought was really interesting. So I was listening to a podcast by, by NPR, which if you know, they're not a, not a Christian podcast, um, but they were talking about <clears throat> anger. And they were saying, obviously, anger has these physiological manifestations. You know, you got increased heart rate, high blood pressure, chemicals get dumped into your blood system. But then it said something that uh, whenever you're preparing for a sermon, this is the kind of thing that sticks out to you. They said, mixed in with these chemicals is a healthy dose of righteousness. And my ears perked up. I was like, oh, okay, NPR, what are you going to say? Uh, but they had an anger researcher, which that's got to be a weird job, <clears throat> an anger researcher by the name of Dr. Jerry Deffenbacher. He describes anger as a moral emotion. Remember, these are not Christians. So a moral emotion. And the way he described that was saying, each of us has this, and I think you'll relate to this, each of us has a way, a picture in our mind of how the world is supposed to go. And when that doesn't happen, we get angry. It's as simple as that. You have things you don't think should happen, and they end up happening. You have things you, don't, you do think should happen, and they don't happen. And that makes us angry. And this is kind of why I think anger isn't inherently bad. You can be angry and not sin. You can be angry at injustice or at mistreatment of people. But, as is so often the case, our anger does not tend to lead to us finding loving solutions to handle things. Even in the name of justice, we can often really just be pursuing our own version of revenge. The Bible says that man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. <clears throat> and I think that's what it's getting at here is we have a picture of the world we think of how it should be. When that doesn't happen, we get angry. And, uh, and I thought this was kind of funny. Uh, I was talking about academic um, researchers, and it said anger theorists, which I don't know what an anger theorist is, but they've recognized that angry people tend to condemn or denigrate those at whom they're angry. Who knew? Angry people denigrate people they're mad at. But I think there's something deeper here because one, the last person I'll quote from this <clears throat> study I read, a guy named Dr. Albert Ellis, 
He mentions condemning others as a primary cause of anger. So condemning others as a primary cause of anger. And he says, the belief that the other person is worthless or less than human generates anger. So what we see here is they're discovering the same thing Jesus is talking about here. Because Jesus is talking about this self-righteous kind of anger that views someone else as less than, to where you would feel the right to call them a moron or a fool or treat them with indifference as if they didn't matter. And when you think about it, valuing people and putting ourselves in that seat of being able to determine how much people are worth, that's the same thing going on in a murderer's mind before they kill somebody. It's that person is worth less than whatever thing they want, whether that's revenge or personal gain or just, you know, a relationship that they want or whatever it is. That's the same thing going on in the mind of a murderer. So the question is, what's the deadly threat to community? You know, what is it that's actually at the root underneath our anger? The answer is it's our pride. It's the pride that exists in every single human heart where we would have the audacity to put ourselves in the seat of God and determine the value and worth of other people. And to look down on them as less than, treat them as empty, treat them as fools. And this means that the greatest threat to human community doesn't come from outside of it. It's not our enemies, it's not the environment, it's not annoying people. The greatest threat to human community is in your heart and it's in my heart. It's our own pride. And you don't have to be an anger expert or an anger theorist uh, to see the way that anger, the self-centered kind of anger and pride, really just destroys community and destroys human relationships. Because you get the opposite of what Jesus described in this passage. You get the opposite of a community that's committed to a hard-fought pursuit of one another's well-being and interests. Instead, what you get is people who are committed to a hard-fought pursuit of their own interests and their own well-being. And what that leads to is whenever their interests or their expectations or their standards aren't met, what happens is you get a lot of anger and insults and judgment and revenge and broken relationships and decay. And what you get is the world we live in today. You get a world of people who've isolated from each other and are angry at each other from a, difference, uh, from a distance. And at, you know, what looks like the best approach, they're just indifferent towards each other. But if they happen to rub shoulders, it's with anger. <clears throat> so then... On that high note, what's the solution? (laughs) What's the solution here? Because it's not really, I was thinking about this when I was putting this teaching together, it's not really a uniquely Christian idea to want peace. Everybody wants that. We might define it differently or talk about how we get it differently, but it's not a uniquely Christian idea to want peace. But what is uniquely Christian, and what we're going to talk about next, is the unique resource that Jesus makes available for Christians to actually live like this in real life to actually live with the type of community that Jesus is talking about. The resources that, Christian have, that Christians have is completely unique. And I'm going to um, talk about that next. That's our last, our final idea, is the real hope for community. <clears throat> and you're going to see here at the, the last two verses, I'm going to read them. You'll notice that Jesus is using courtroom language. So I'm going to read verses 25 and 26. <clears throat> Jesus says, Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So you may be wondering, where is there a solution in that set of verses? You know, where is there a hope here? But this courtroom language, <clears throat> while Jesus doesn't give us the specific solution here, he, he is the solution. This specific courtroom language is used all through the Bible. This idea of a debt being owed or being in prison, not getting out till the price is paid. And in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, 
the uh, Apostle Paul is using the same kind of courtroom language. And listen to what he says. He says, It is of little importance to me that I should be evaluated by you or by any human court. So here we are again on that idea of, of judging and evaluating people. He says, In fact, I don't even evaluate myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself. But I am not justified by this. The one who evaluates me is the Lord. Now, what Paul is saying here is only good news. It's only good news if you understand what he understood because he's using this courtroom language. And I think the reason he's doing that, he's not talking to a church in 1 Corinthians. I mean, he's talking to a church. He's not talking to a court in 1 Corinthians. So the reason he's using this courtroom language is you and I, we we might not think about this consciously, we all feel like we're constantly on trial, either from others or even from ourselves. And what this leads to is the same pride and insecurity that leads to the the anger and all the issues, all the breakdown in relationships we're talking about today because when we feel like we're constantly on trial, whether you realize it or not, you go through life trying to justify yourself, trying to justify your existence. So you come up with your own set of what that looks like to live a worthwhile life, and when you're doing really well at it, you feel prideful. And you're able then to look down on people and even treat people with anger who aren't as good as you. And on the flip side, when you're evaluating yourself in this courtroom of life and you realize that you're not doing so good, what happens is you feel extremely insecure. And then what you do is you tear other people down with your words or find people who are worse than you so you can feel better about yourself. So you've got this really ugly combination of pride and insecurity. And what happens is we're typically usually a mix of both of those things. It's not like you're either or. We're typically a really ugly mix of both of those. But Paul says his solution is he's, he's out of the courtroom now. He doesn't deal with this problem anymore. And his solution, if you listen, if you were listening, he said, the one who evaluates me is the Lord. But if you remember what Jesus said at the beginning of this passage, he said, you're not better than a murderer. <laughs> so there's a, there's a disconnect here. What does he know that, that is this resource? It, this isn't good news for us if God's the one evaluating us and he knows everything. And if you look at the whole storyline of the Bible, you'll realize that when Jesus is talking about an adversary and a debt that's owed, we've made ourselves adversaries of God by the way that we've treated his law, the way we've disregarded him. So we're actually in debt to God with an infinite debt we could never pay. So this is not good news unless you understand the gospel, which is the unique resource that Christians have that make community not just with God but with other people even possible. Because what the gospel is, the gospel is the complete flipping around of that situation where he says, settle quickly with your adversary before you get to court. The gospel is that our, the person we made an enemy of, God, settled our debt on our behalf before we got to court. He paid that price himself, every last penny. So he set us free. Because what Jesus did was live a life completely free of debt. Never, never broke God's law, never had any debt of his own. <clears throat> and then he decided to go and stand in the courtroom on your behalf and receive the condemnation that would be due a murderer like you and I, and he received death in our place. And not only through that are we, if you put your faith in Christ, are you forgiven of all your sin, is all your debt paid, but you also receive the righteousness of Jesus, which means that now when Paul says, the one who evaluates me is God, what he knows when he's saying that is that God sees him as perfect. God sees him as he would see his own son, as he would see Jesus. 
And when we know that, we don't have to self-justify. We don't have to self-promote. We don't have to tear others down. We can actually completely leave the courtroom. And I'm going to call up the worship team, and we'll close down here. But I want to talk about why the gospel can do that, why the gospel is actually a resource that actually helps us with this type of, this issue of pride we're talking about, actually helps us live in community with one another because the gospel does this for us because when you realize, <clears throat> when you truly believe, because you can hear someone say, you're no better than a murderer if you're angry, and you can easily in your mind say, well, maybe. Um, but when you really believe that, when you really understand the severity of our problem, and then you realize at the exact same time that Jesus saw you as worth enough to die for, the gospel is him saying, hey, you're worthy of me to die for. Not because we deserve it, but I see you as valuable enough to die for. It's him pursuing us as the prince of peace, pursuing our well-being, actively committed to our well-being, hard-fought, inconvenient, gave his life, self-sacrificial love that he gave us. And whenever you see that, it'll humble you. Really, when you think about it, a prideful Christian, it's not that we can never be prideful, but it's an oxymoron. Christian admits they're a murderer. You know, how can you be prideful whenever someone else messes up? It's an oxymoron because Christians are not people who are better than other people. Christians are a guilty people who've been forgiven a great debt because a God loved them with a great love. That's what a Christian is, someone who's put their faith in this Jesus who was willing to be the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom on our behalf. So it'll humble you, but it'll also make you more secure than anything else ever could because you realize that Jesus isn't just pursuing your peace, he is your peace. And in him you have completeness, you have wholeness, you have everything you could ever need, so then there's nothing left for you to get by trying to pull it away from other people or striving for your own self-interest. Now you truly can be someone who has everything to give because you have everything from Jesus. So we're free. You know, every penny has been paid. We're free to actually be peacemakers. We're free from this pride, free from this anger, free to actually begin to live out this community of peace Jesus is describing here. And we won't get it perfect. That's why he talks about how to deal with conflict. But we now have peace with God, which means we can have peace with people. So I just want to end with, uh, with today saying, today we were obviously just talking about the Christian community, how Christians relate to one another. In future weeks, we'll talk about how this pursuit of peace isn't confined to the church. It goes beyond the four walls to even our enemies. But I want to leave us with this question. It's just, do you understand what the Prince of Peace has done for you? Do you understand it? Because if you do, it'll completely change you. You'll be able to leave the courtroom and you'll actually be able to, will actually be able to be a community of peacemakers who actually pursue one another like this now, here on earth. It's not going to be perfect, but we can actually live like this because of the resource that we have in Jesus. That's all I have for us. I'm going to go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, we are uh, so grateful that you have not only pursued our peace, but that you are our peace. That you would come down and fix a problem you had no hand in making and pay a debt that you had no hand in accumulating. And you would do that just because you love us. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we worked hard, but you did that just because you love us. Help us to really understand that and understand, just help it to change our heart, God. Help it to make us people who are humble and secure at the same time. God, make us a community of people who are different for the right reasons. That would be people who are peacemakers, who are seeking restoration and healing and wholeness in a way that reflects your heart and your heart for peace. 
Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Amen.